Good morning. Today's reading is from Micah 6. This is the word of the Lord. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. You have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. This is the word of the Lord. I have noticed, brothers and sisters, that of the production of courtroom TV shows, there seems to be no end. Have you all noticed that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, On on the rare occasion that I've been home, not feeling well during the day, and happened to turn on the TV, I've learned that you can practically take your pick when it comes to this genre. You have the People's Court, you have Judge Judy, you have Judge Joe Brown, you have Judge Mathis. We, we seem to have, at least in the daytime TV audience viewing category, a certain infatuation, if I could put it that way, with the juicy details of other people's lives. Do you know what I'm talking about? Certain infatuation with that. But, but as I think about this and our, our kind of love of courtroom TV, I, I think the reason for our interest actually runs a little bit deeper than just, well, we like devouring gossip. There's something in the heart of every human being, your heart, my heart, that longs for justice. I think it's part of being created in the image of God. Creation testifies, not just what's around us, but what's inside of us, the way God's made us, that all we can see is not all there is. That there's a God in heaven who who rules over the cosmos and to whom all of us are accountable. Romans 1 verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they, we, all of of us as mankind, are without excuse 
No excuse. Now we can suppress that knowledge. We can ignore that awareness, but listen, as Paul says, it has an uncanny way of outing itself through the desires of the heart. Justice included. We, we instinctively know that right and wrong are real things. Even a professing atheist for the most part, is is unwilling to jettison completely the moral categories of right and wrong. And so even if we define them in a a thousand different ways, our, our collective hunger, so to speak, for right to prevail and wrong to be punished doesn't go away. We can't get rid of that. And so something about the concept of a courtroom the, the accountability it exudes, the, the justice it represents resonates in our hearts. We're, we're strangely drawn to that. And I think it's what makes the, the context of Micah 6, this whole chapter, so arresting. Because in Micah 6, here's what's going down. The Lord is taking Israel to court. He's taking them to court. He summons witnesses and issues an indictment in verses 1 through 5. He he reviews the requirements of the law in verses 6 through 8. And and he renders a verdict in verses 9 through 16. In other words, Yahweh is both the prosecuting attorney and the judge. And and here's the divinely intended effect of his entire case. What, what, What is the Lord after in all this? The Lord wants to connect three things in Israel's mind, no less than our own. Here they are, past mercies, future judgment, and present obedience. He puts all three of those things on the table, Micah 6, past mercies, future judgment, present obedience, and connects them. Why? Here's the point of the whole, because past mercies and future judgment compel the present obedience God requires. That's the connection, that that past mercies and future judgment aren't just things that, that exist in a Christian worldview, like ornaments hanging on your Bible Christmas tree. They do something. There's a divinely intended effect. They they compel something. They're meant to produce something. What's that? The present obedience God requires. A a humble heart of obedience is the goal here. Look at verse 8. It's the middle of the passage, the key to the whole. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Grateful obedience is the goal. And the legal argument the Lord makes here in this chapter to to convince Israel of that, to convince us of that, is an argument in three stages. We we need to feel the weight of each of these elements. Here's the first one. Point number one. Remember the righteous acts of the Lord. Verses one to five. Okay, remember the righteous acts of the Lord. Look, Look at the beginning of verse one. This is very important. The command to hear... That's not a option. That's a command from the Lord at the beginning of verse one. It it marks something in Micah. It marks the beginning of the third and final section of the book. It's divided into three sections. And this marks the beginning of the final one as it does the other two. It's it's also a plural command. So the, the Lord is calling all Israel to listen, to pay attention. But notice in the next part of verse one that the summons to arise or plead your case, those commands are singular. So the Lord seems to be exhorting Micah, the prophet, to keep doing what he has been doing to speak on Yahweh's behalf. And Micah does that in verse two. Look there. He speaks now. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth for the Lord has an indictment against his people. So through the mouth of the prophet, the the Lord is, as it were, he's calling the courtroom of creation to order. Feel the weight of that. Inviting the the highest of heights, the mountains, that the deepest 
of depths, the, the foundations of the earth to, to bear witness to the truth of his charge. Why? He's not just being dramatic. What does Isaiah 66 1 tell us? Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. From the very beginning, the Lord is reminding Israel and us that he is not a tribal or local deity speaking. This is the creator and king of the universe speaking. The Lord of hosts is speaking. The Lord of all the earth is speaking with whom all people have to do, you and me included. And the fact that he has an indictment, what's that? A, a legal accusation of transgression against the law. The fact that God has that, before we even look at what it is, the fact that he, just, that he has an indictment, shouts, tells us two things. Listen, first, it assumes the existence and normative character of the moral law of God. That the God who created the world and everything in it, we've seen this over and over again in Micah, he's perfectly holy. Which means what, friend? God is the moral standard. Not what you think or your parents think or your friends think or even your pastors think. God is the moral standard. May that be clear. And apart from him, listen, there is no moral foundation for ethical claims of any sort. There's no universal standard of law that that can form the legal basis for an indictment. We love moral categories. We love accusing people of right and wrong. But you know what we have a problem with? The moral foundation on which they rest, which is the very law of God. The holiness and righteousness of God is the foundation of the whole concept of justice. That's the first thing the indictment reveals. Second, the presence of an indictment tells us, listen, God is not indifferent or unengaged or uninvolved in the affairs of men. He's watching. He's he's observing. He's listening. He's paying careful attention to you. And everything about you and everything around you. Why? Because God requires his creatures to conform to that moral standard. Which is another way of saying what? That God is perfectly just. Perfectly just. We we can't escape. You can't avoid God's justice, friend. His justice is the very definition of justice. So, what is the indictment? Look at verse 3. He unseals the charge. What is it? Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. He's getting in Israel's face. The Lord is. And, And we know from Micah 1 through 3, There's a reason for that, that the people of Israel, God's people, had completely turned their backs on the Lord, completely turned away. The the social injustice in their land reflected a heart that was far from God. So so the Lord had called and drawn Israel to himself, but but they did what in response? They committed spiritual adultery. They, They went after other gods. And they hated and oppressed their neighbors accordingly. So so the Lord opens with An attempt to convict them with a rhetorical question. Is there anything I did, guys, Israel, to deserve this? Am I responsible on any level for your rejection of my authority? Did I wrong you in some way? Have I been unfaithful to you in any respect? What's the answer? What's the rhetorical answer? No, right? No, but God doesn't just say, oh, no, take my word for it. He opens up the evidence train, right? Look at verse four. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, guys. If you're not familiar with that story, centuries prior to Micah's day, 
the people of Israel were grievously suffering under Egyptian taskmasters bent on destroying them. They, They even tried to kill all the male infants that were born to the Jews. But the Lord intervened. And he, he rescued them with, with a strong arm of salvation. He, he judged the host of Egypt with 10 plagues. And then he parted the waters of the Red Sea. He, he brought his people through on dry ground. And, and though that, that whole exodus occurs near the beginning of Israel's story, you need to know this if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, it just shows up again and again and again and again and again. <laughs> Because the prophets keep referring back to it as the definitive example of God's saving acts on behalf of his people. It's why the Lord uses, notice this in verse 4, the word you. Speaking in the present to those around Micah. Even though he's talking about what happened to Israelites living 700 years earlier. He doesn't say, I brought them up. He says what? I brought you up. Guys, this is your story. This this is your history collectively, corporately. This, This is how I have miraculously intervened in your life. To to which I would simply say, Christian, do do you not have immeasurably more reason to say the exact same thing? Do you realize that? They they looked back on the Exodus. What what do we look back on? The cross of Christ, right? The the empty tomb, the the climax of God's saving acts, the deliverance from slavery in Egypt pointed forward to something. What was that? The day when God himself would come down and deliver his people from slavery to sin and death. Has he not been good to you, Christian? Has has he not given you the joy of being justified and and sanctified and, and adopted and made new through the power of the gospel. If, if Israel had compelling reasons to him the praise of the God who saves, do we not have infinitely more? Feel that, because it's true. Has the Lord not provided for you? We'll just keep going here with the evidence strength. Has the Lord not provided for you? Through the leadership, the care, the help of his people. Verse four, I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Not exhaustive, illustrative. Has the Lord not protected you, Christian, from evil again and again and again, sovereignly causing all things to work together for your good? Has he not done that? Israel's story in Numbers 22 is is our story. If you're not familiar with that one, on on the way to the promised land of Canaan, a a king of Moab named Balak tried to take out Israel, destroy them. But he knew he was a bit outgunned. That's the biggest understatement ever. And, and to se- try to secure an advantage in the fight, he, he attempted to pay a rather shysty spiritual guy by the name of Balaam, a princely son, to, to put a, a spell on Israel, to curse them. So they would lose the battle. If you go back and read Numbers 22 and following, it's an incredible story. Three times Balak summons Balaam and holds out his money bags. And three times Balaam basically says, I so want your money. (laughs) You You can literally feel and hear him drooling over it. It was a princely sum. And yet three times, Balaam basically says, Balak, but I cannot curse that which God has blessed. He wanted to. You see, that's the point. He wanted to, desperately. But what prevented him? The sovereign arm of God. He couldn't curse that which God has blessed. And he actually winds up pronouncing three blessings over Israel to the point where Balak says, okay, I'm done with you. Get out of here. 
Do you remember that, Israel, the Lord says? Have you, have you forgotten that experience? And how about what happened, verse 5, from Shittim to Gilgal? Which is a geographic way of referring to the crossing of the Jordan River. That's what happened in the middle of those two places. Because the Jordan was, was in the spring, so it was at flood stage. It was a raging torrent. And Joshua told the priest carrying the Ark of the Lord, which, which was kind of the physical symbol of the presence of God in the midst of his people. He said, guys, priest, there's a raging muddy torment. I want you to step off the bank into the water. You see the pattern? <laughs> and what happened? The Lord caused the water to pile up upstream, and the whole nation walked through to Jericho on dry ground again. Have you forgotten that? Did, did I not do that? Did, did I not bring you into the promised land and cause all the inhabitants of Canaan to, to tremble and fear? What, what is Micah saying, speaking on God's behalf? Israel, you've got salvation from Egypt at the beginning, Salvation at the Jordan near the end, bookends, and you've got deliverance from all your enemies in the middle. Christian, if you are trusting and following Jesus, that story is your story. That's your story. Psalm 121 verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He'll keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out. And you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And he says the same thing to you that he said to Israel. Remember, oh my people. Remember. Remember King's Way. Why? Why? Look at verse 5. That you, that we may know the righteous acts of the Lord. We would know them. You know what I think is the most, the single most spiritually dangerous thing that we ever do? Some of you are probably thinking, oh, well, there's some spectacular sin I could commit or some apostasy I could fall into. And I actually, I beg to differ. The most spiritually dangerous thing we ever do is to forget to forget. Forget what? The righteous saving acts of the Lord. The single most spiritually dangerous thing you can ever do. We, we start thinking, man, what has God done for me lately? Hmm. I'll just tell you, not much. <laughs> and and I look at my life and I'm still sick. I'm still single. I'm still underemployed. I'm still suffering. And we, be, we begin to think and to act and to feel as if, as if God's past mercies, God's righteous acts just don't even exist. We, we functionally erase them out of our personal and corporate history. If you would, we cancel them out. May that not be so in our midst, brothers and sisters. D Dale Davis is right. Listen, I love this. Israel is to know these acts, not merely as pieces of data, but as the combined evidence of his grace that claims the repentance and obedience. To remember involves the same. It is not mere recollection, Remembrance refers to what grips you and moves you and drives you. Christian, what, what should grip you and move you and drive you more than anything else? You know what it is? It's not a mystery. It's the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb. That, that's what should grip you and move you and drive you. And to the degree we forget that or fail to remember that or or it ceases to be something we know and, and have our eyes on in an ever-present way, a thousand evils begin to multiply. 
We need to remember the righteous God who makes things right. Delivering us from our enemies again and again because his past mercies make a claim on your life. My life. Point number two. We need to not just remember his, his past mercies. We need to respond with a humble heart of obedience. Okay, verses six through eight. The, the question in verse six, look there with me, please. It's the most important question you will ever answer on this earth. I'm not exaggerating. What is that? With what shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord? Given the fact that he created me, given the fact that he laid down his life for me on the cross, given the fact that I have sinned and rebelled against his authority, With what shall I come before the Lord? How how then shall we live? How how are you going to relate to your maker, to the, the transcendent God on high, Micah says, with whom we all have to do, with whom you have to do, the Lord of hosts. Well, there are different approaches, and Micah captures one of the most common in verses 6 through 7. It, it's a response that, that acknowledges on some level our, our guilt before God on account of our sin, but, but instead of casting ourselves on his mercy in Jesus, what do we readily do? We try to buy him off. We, we, we try to be a good person, or, or at least a better person than all the people we saw on the news last night. <laughs> we, we say to ourselves, maybe I can come before him with burnt offerings. I'll, I'll show God all, all the sacrificial ways I've given up my time and my money to, to help other people. Or, or maybe I can please him with thousands of rams. It, it won't happen quickly. It takes a long time to kill that many sheep. But, but if I keep at it by the end of my days, maybe... I think I will. I think I'll have enough good deeds to, to buy my way into God's presence. In, in verse 7, look there, Israel increases the value of their sacrifices to the point of absurdity, frankly. How about 10,000 rivers of oil? Or how, how about we offer up our firstborn sons on the altar? There's a dark side to that one. Because two of Israel's wicked kings, Ahaz and Manasseh, actually did that. They they sacrificed their own children to to the pagan god, Moloch, in an attempt to, to earn his favor. Friends, here's here's the truth of the gospel, okay? Here's the truth of the gospel. There there is only one price sufficient to earn access into the presence and favor of God. It's a price only God could pay. It's a price God has paid. It's the blood of his only son, friend. All All the cultic sacrifices offerings God God required under the old covenant were never ever meant not once to teach Israel that all they had to do was just pay an entry fee no the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin what what did all that ritual shout what did it point toward toward the day Jesus Hebrews 9 28 appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself once and for all. That reminds us that there's nothing you can give God. There's nothing you can do for God to, to, to blot out, to erase the stain of your sin, your guilt. You, you can scrub at that till the day you die. Still red, 
still dirty, still condemned, just spread out like a, like a bad eraser on a whiteboard that just doesn't work. The good news is that you don't have to. Because salvation isn't of you. Salvation is of the Lord, Kingsway. It's of the Lord. He doesn't ask you to earn his favor. He asks you to rightly respond to the favor he graciously and freely lavishes upon us in Jesus. That's what the Lord requires of you, to use Micah's language. It's it's a response to the salvation he's already won for us. Because make no mistake, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, all he's done to save us, it requires a response. What is that? The obedience of faith. Look at verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? If it's not all the stuff that came before, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What's Micah saying? Israel, God doesn't want or need you to sacrifice something. He wants you. You are the sacrifice. Or, or to use Paul's language in Romans 12, 1, in view of the mercies of God, what do we do? We offer up our body, all that we are, all that we have, thoughts, feelings, actions, the whole kit and caboodle, as a living sacrifice to him. He requires nothing less than the offering of a life that responds to the salvation he's lavished on us in Jesus by, by wholeheartedly submitting to his authority. And all we think and act and feel In other words, verse 8 is not a boogeyman that jumps out of a passage to tempt us to save ourselves by good works. Don't read it that way. What is it? If it's not that, it shows us how we express our faith in the work Christ has already done for us. Because faith must be expressed, right? If it is to be genuine, if it is to be real, we are saved by grace alone and Christ alone through what? Faith alone. It's the obedience of faith. It's what a right response to the gospel looks like. I'll I'll say it this way, (laughs) because we get messed up here. We don't get to decide for ourselves what works for us with God. Yeah, I think I'm interested in being spiritual, so I'm going to kind of roll with it that way. Sort of glean from different strands and kind of cosmopolitan, you know. There's truth everywhere. And I'll just sort of assemble a a spirituality for myself. Well, that might get you in the newspaper, but that will get you nowhere before the court of heaven. Because what does the Lord say? Look at verse 8. He has left it up to you, O man, to decide what is good. No. No, friend. We we laugh, but don't we do that? Create religions, create our own way of pleasing God, just like the Pharisees did? No. He has told you, O man, what is good. God tells us what faith looks like. God tells us what the obedience of faith looks like because it looks like something. It's not just something we get to say, well, yeah, it's in there. It doesn't ever out itself, but trust me, it's in there deep down. No, if it's the genuine article, it will out itself. It will reveal itself. It will show itself in the form of three things. Let's look at them carefully. We're going to linger on the first because I think this one in our day, we get the most messed up. So, First, it means we do justice. So what's it mean to do justice? It means relating to the people around you in accordance with the word of God. That's what it means. So in a negative sense, two sides of the coin on that, 
It means not doing the wicked things Israel was doing. What were they doing all throughout the book of Micah? They were oppressing people through violence and dishonesty. So so Micah says what? If you're going to do justice, you have to stop using wicked scales and deceitful weights. You have to stop doing that. You, You have to stop stealing land from your neighbors. You have to stop corrupting the legal system, that was what chapter 3 was all about, to, to cover your tracks, so to speak. In negative sense, that's what doing justice means, but, but let's not forget that's only half the coin. In a positive sense, it means what? Treating people in accordance with the dignity God has given them as his image bearers. It means practicing compassion, practicing generosity, Practicing a a love that pushes back on all the effects of sin in a broken world. In in other words, all all of the one another commands in the Bible are part of how we do justice. And when it comes to doing justice, please listen carefully, very carefully. We, We are chiefly responsible, friends, for how we personally relate to the people around us. Okay, to our family, to our friends, our coworkers, the clerk who helps you at a grocery store, the TSA agent who's inspecting your luggage for the third time. And the Lord will also give some of us positions of influence from which we can impact broader social systems and structures. Why does that matter? Because they too are easily corrupted by injustice because they're built and maintained by people like us who need a savior. <laughs> But, but that doesn't mean, however, that, that you're responsible for doing something to, to rectify, to fix every injustice you see on the evening news. I, I think social media has a, a pernicious way of wrongly labeling anyone who fails to express outrage at injustice acts as being part of the problem. You ever heard that? Friends, only Jesus can make all things new. Only Jesus can do that. If I felt, just very practically, if I felt outrage about every injustice on planet earth all the time, I would have no tears left to shed. In other words, the the breadth of your grief is not the measure of your godliness. But listen, something is terribly wrong if our hearts only grieve the injustices that affect our family or our little social circle and not the sorrows that afflict others. Over the last couple years, I've been saddened to see how often the evangelical response to injustice readily succumbs to a selfish individualism that that doesn't really care about sorrows impacting people who are not like us or not like me. Or or we presume that, that whatever those people are all worked up about is really... It's their own fault. Sad to say it, but somebody has to. And we immediately cue up the hymn of personal responsibility. Scripture certainly emphasizes our personal responsibility to God and man. But slogans like, just get a job. Or just do what the officer said. Reflect neither a biblical doctrine of sin, nor the compassion Jesus practiced toward the weak and the downtrodden. Proverbs 31 verse 8, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. The Lord commands us, friends, to contend for justice for the poor and the needy in whatever sphere of influence he has sovereignly placed you. But, but let's, let's not turn 
every opportunity into a responsibility. Or use the opportunities God has given us, or you, to to advocate for justice in in a way that, that builds towers of virtue from which we demean the young mom spending 150% of her energy doing justice within the four walls of her home. We're demeaning the single woman caring for her disabled brother as if that's not enough unless she likes certain posts on her Facebook page. Galatians 6.10 strikes the right balance. Listen, this is, this is what we need to hear. When it comes to doing justice, What's the balance? Lord, help us. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I love that. That's our call. Genuine faith is characterized by doing justice. Here's here's the second thing. We're still in verse eight. Told you we were gonna linger here. Second, it means we love kindness or steadfast love. The, The Lord is concerned, in other words, not that... We just treat people in the right way, that's justice, but that we do it motivated by the right heart. Steadfast love. Loving kindness means loving what God loves and and feeling toward other people what God feels. It it means we remain faithful to one another through thick and thin, overlooking faults, making charitable judgments, forgiving one another, caring for one another, even when it costs us dearly. Okay, loving kindness is all about the attitude behind our actions, imitating the way God has loved us and the way we love each other. And third, what's obedient faith look like? It means we walk humbly with our God, Micah says. The right actions and the right attitudes are, are rooted in a right relationship with God. That that makes it all possible. A relationship characterized by what? What, What's the key word for all of us? Humility, Micah says. Humility. It it means, what's humility mean? A relationship with God. It means we submit, we put ourselves under, gladly, cheerfully, his authority in every area of our life. Your work, your relationships, your sexuality, your entertainment, instead of asserting your own. It means not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought, acknowledging our dependence, our our sinfulness, our our continual need for the Spirit's power. It means not treating God as someone who owes us, but rather as one to whom we owe a debt of gratitude we can never repay. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. That's what the Lord requires. That's how we respond to the mercy he's lavished on us in Jesus with a humble heart of obedience in the way we relate to him and each other. We remember his righteous acts, we respond with a heart of obedience, we'll end with this, finally. We revere the judge who will not leave the guilty unpunished. This is really important. We've seen that God's mercy in the past compels present obedience. That's the whole point of the connection between verses five and eight. But so do his promised judgments in the future. No less important, though it tends to make us a little bit more uncomfortable. Necessarily so. Because in verse nine, the Lord shifts, look there, from the role of prosecutor to judge as he prepares to announce the verdict. His his judgments merit our attention, my friends. Why? Why? Because they are the the rod of authority that prevails over and against all others. Verse 9, it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Amen. So if verse 8 is the standard, the the law, so to speak, the legal standard, how, how does Israel measure up? How she measure up? Well, they are stubbornly unrepentant. They keep embracing the exact opposite of what the Lord requires. Look at verse 10. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness? What an image. They're not just wicked, but but they're prizing it. 
delighting in it. In the house of the wicked and the scant measure or the deceitful measure, the, the lying scales that, that is accursed. All your economic oppression, verse 12, your rich men are full of violence. I knew it because injustice always starts with the social elites. Corporate America. Not so fast, friend. Keep reading. Your inhabitants speak lies. Whole city. All social classes. And their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. It's, it's a human problem plaguing every social class. Then, just as it does today. And the divine verdict arrives in verse 13. Finally, therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins, the Lord says. The, the consequences of sin are personal. In the sense that God himself will personally bring them to pass because he's executing justice personally as a righteous judge and king. And and in the the entire rest of the chapter, he he details, marshals out another list of the utter futility, the deprivation that, that Israel will experience on account of her rebellion. And therein lies two things for us. A warning to all who persist in oppressing others through unrepentant sin and a hope for all who suffer injustice at the hands of wicked men. King Jesus will not allow injustice to prevail. He won't allow it. He'll personally see to it that the wicked are punished. In the end, no one gets away with anything. No one. And and in a fallen world like the one we live in, friends, we, we have to fix our hope on the God of justice. You have to do that. Otherwise, all our efforts to do justice... Love, kindness, walk humbly. It's just all going to be plagued and and corrupted by a a self-sufficiency, a self-righteousness that that tries to, well, more or less, do God's job for him. (laughs) You know what I mean by that? Tries to do his job for him. So so what may start out in relationship as a a desire, just pick a close relationship in your life, to, to help someone grow or to help someone change quickly shifts into a crusade to make them change. Ever done that? Or or to force them to change. And if if they don't move fast enough, if they don't get on the justice train, kindness train, humbly train quick enough, well, then we turn a cold shoulder instead of turning the other cheek. Don't try to do God's job for him, my friend or pressure other people to do God's job for you. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. It's mine. You will only be able, I'll say it this way, you'll only be able to tirelessly do justice, contending through your your personal example, the influence of your life for every image bear to be treated according to God's moral norms. You'll only be able to do that if your eyes remain fixed in the darkness of this world on the dawn of Christ's return. That's essential. When when every mouth will be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. I marvel in the warning in verse 16 how the Lord still refuses to wash his hands of them completely. That desolation and scorn Israel was about to receive in abundance at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Yet what does God say they remain at the very end of the chapter? What are the last two words in Micah 6? You're still my people. Isn't that stunning? Last two words. 
What, what is going to bring the sovereign purposes of God to pass? It's not the faithfulness of our obedience, but the faithfulness of our God. Amen. It's not your ability to wake up tomorrow morning and say, check it out, God. I present myself to you as a fine specimen of your people. (laughs) You would never do that, right? I don't recommend it. (laughs) It's the fact that in his staggering mercy, he looks at sinners that from the dawn of time he has chosen to draw to himself, languishing in a rebellion, dead in our sin, and says, You're still my people. Who does that? (laughs) So we have to revere the judge who will not let the guilty go unpunished. And at the same time, that very judge is the one in whom we hope, friends. The the one whom we trust. the, The one who we come before and cast ourselves on his mercy. Why? Because he's a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. He's a God who wounds, but he's also a God who heals. All who refuse in this life to humble themselves and receive his offer of pardon in Jesus will be eternally punished. But as long as your heart is still beating, it's never too late to turn. Even if you've been running from him for decades, the the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He, he rises to show you compassion. He, he directs your gaze to his past mercies. He directs your gaze to his future judgment. That all of that might compel you to embrace the obedience of faith he requires. That's his heart. Don't presume on his mercy, my friend. Please don't. Respond to his saving acts in Jesus with a cry for salvation. Because that is what your God requires. Let's pray. Father, as we sing this song now and declare together that our hope for the present, for the future, is in your grace, I pray that you would empower and strengthen us for the obedience of faith you require. Lord, for those of us that have grown complacent, lazy, because we have completely forgotten your saving acts, or your righteous deeds have become boring in our eyes, Lord, forgive us. Where those of us have charged into this world or our circle of relationships and influence and sought to bring the hammer of change, so to speak. I'll make this world what it's supposed to be. I'll watch me do some justice. Lord, would you forgive us too? Would you make us a people that tenaciously represent you and express trust in you through our good works, but do it all with an abiding confidence in the grace of God. We love you, Jesus. Amen.